Today's episode of The Sixers Beat is brought to you by Robinhood. With Robinhood, you can invest in stocks, options, and ETFs right from your phone. You can even spend and earn interest on uninvested cash. And with fractional shares, you can buy stocks in any amount, including companies like Apple, Amazon, and Tesla, for as little as $1. And that's with no commission fees or account minimums. So whether you're new to investing and ready to learn, or just looking for a better experience, stop waiting and join the 10 million Robinhood users. Listeners can get started with a free stock by going to Robinhood.com. All investments involve risk. This is not an investment advice, a recommendation, or a solicitation of any security. Other fees may apply. Visit rbnhd.co slash fees. Once again, it's rbnhd.co slash fees. The free stock program is subject to certain limitations. Annual percentage yield, APY, on uninvested cash is paid by program banks and is variable. Robinhood Financial is not a bank. Welcome, everybody. This is Derek Bodner, joined by Rich Hoffman on the Sixers Beat, part of the Athletics Podcast Network. If you can, please do leave us a rating or a review, especially on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate that. And also, if you're not a subscriber to The Athletics, since this is going to be a second free podcast of the week, make sure you go subscribe to The Athletic. You can get Rich's thoughts on last night's game against the Celtics, our thoughts on what the Sixers will do with and without Embiid in the lineup and just our general ramblings about your beloved Philadelphia 76ers. So I guess we'll start off there. The Sixers picked up a 109-98 win over the Boston Celtics. They are now 3-0 over Boston this season after being flummoxed by them in previous years. In fact, they pretty much can't lose to the top of the Eastern Conference. So that means everything is good in the Sixers' world. Right, Rich? Right? It really is. It really is bizarro. Sixer season because last year yes. it was Boston who was going through all the turmoil and they had the chemistry issues. Although I think th- those were more actual chemistry issues. The Sixers seem like it's a lot of on court fit issues. Although, you know, Boston might've had too many, uh, too many cooks in the kitchen last year too. There's, there was some of that, but they still own the Sixers. And I think back to, I think it was in February and bead after a third straight loss to Boston. Embiid at the end of the game or afterwards, he had a press conference where he said the referees effing sucked. <laughs> and there was a high level of frustration. It's just like we can't beat these guys to the point where they won a close game at home, I think in March, where Butler made a shot at the end of the game, posted up against Kyrie Irving. And, and for the Sixers to just go one and three in the series against Boston last year was like, it was such a relief. We we needed that one. They can't lose against these guys this year. No. And not only can they um, can they not lose against them, they're doing it in different ways. First night they have everybody healthy, but it's you know it's the first night they haven't played a lot together. Easy win. Then they go up to Boston. No Horford. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Embiid dominates them. And then you thought last night, at least they didn't have Embiid, who is the guy on paper who smokes Boston because their big guys just don't have the the size or, in, in Canner's case, just the defensive aptitude to play and beat. No, nah, they still beat him anyway. And uh, I think going into a potential playoff series, if they were to play these guys, they should feel pretty good about how they played him because that was a, uh, that was a gutty win last night. And uh, 
good performances all around. Josh Richardson, the offensive star. Al Horford, kind of the two-way star. Ben Simmons, great defense. It was uh, it was a really strong performance to start a stretch of basketball that is going to test the Sixers. Yeah, it is. It's it's so weird because on the one hand, there's all this tor- turmoil. Like they lost seven out of ten games. So many fit issues. On the other hand, you look at some of the matchups. I think they match up well against Boston. I think they match up well against Indy. I think they match up better than most teams against Milwaukee. Now, for most teams, that means they have a 10% chance of beating Milwaukee in a series. For the Sixers, that might mean 25%. Like, I'm, still, I'm not saying they're the favorites, but they match up better with Milwaukee than a lot of teams do. Match up so better the, with Miami than most teams. I Miami, think. too. And I think the Miami's 2-1 to one series lead right now, I think, is a little bit fluky. Like, I think the Sixers can have things they can exploit in a series. The one team that is maybe counter to that is Toronto, who continues to win almost despite any logic, which is truly amazing to watch. So you wonder what that will be like in a series. But every other team, you're like, yeah, I think the Sixers are actually built pretty well to, to take on these guys. On the other hand, it seems like everything is in sheer panic mode. And everyone is in panic mode and everything is is questionable. So I guess we'll start off, I mean, a, a day after we found out about Joel Embiid needing surgery, we pretty much have to start off there, even though we just spent four minutes rambling about the Boston Celtics. So I, I, I guess we found out maybe like 10 minutes beforehand that there would be that basically we should get to the press conference area sooner than normal and of course the announcement then came that Joel Embiid was um actually at that time surgery wasn't yet announced they're still evaluating the options but in addition to a dislocated dislocated finger he had a torn radial collateral ligament of the fourth metacarpal in his left hand basically the 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 ring finger of his non-shooting hand Radical, or, or as you ligament. would, as you called it on Twitter, a radical uh, collateral ligament. By the way, a, l- a little peek behind the curtain here, and it's not really a, a cool peek behind the curtain. When these updates get sent to us, and every reporter there is trying to tweet out quickly what is being told to us, there is nobody worse in the world than me. Oh, at, I, I, at trying I, to get these I'm, out I'm certainly right there. Uh, my my typos per tweet definitely go up when I'm in a rush. I actually proofreaded that one and still somehow <laughs> missed the autocorrect from radial to radical on my phone. Uh, anyway, the, as I said afterwards, the, I definitely a, have one ra- person in mind who is is worse at that than you. But we will not we will sure. not name names on this one. Sure, but uh, at least a radical. That was funny. T- tear would th- that would sound cooler? I mean, it, yeah. or it it would might sound worse than than what it actually is. All right, but keep going. So anyway, about, I guess about half an hour later, we got pulled back into the press conference room for an announcement that he would be having surgery tomorrow, which is now today in New York, and that he would be reevaluated in one to two weeks. Now, this is key. It doesn't mean he will be back in one to two weeks. Sixers don't give timelines anymore. They gave time or they don't give timelines on return to play. They give timelines for the time when he will be reevaluated. So you will have a next timeline of when he would be reevaluated so there's levels to this shit yes it's not like you know i think doing some preliminary research on this injury and a lot of it tends to come like i feel like you see more radial collateral ligament tears in the thumb than anything so like maybe there's an argument that on your ring finger you can come back quicker because it's not used as much there's not as much pressure on it i don't know not as, as much range of motion. I'm, I have no idea. I'm just you're speaking. just making stuff up. Right, right I'm making stuff up for a podcast. But a lot of timelines you tend to see are six to eight weeks. 
again, maybe it's a different finger, so maybe you'll see like four to six weeks. But I don't. I think he will be out longer than two weeks. So we now have this situation where you are going to be living without Joel Embiid here for a, a decent chunk of time. I don't think this is something where it should linger to the point where it should affect the postseason, at least directly in the hand. We can get into some conditioning concerns and whether that might affect the postseason. Well, but I don't think this is like an, a season derailing concern. But it is something where you have, you know, first of all, you've, you've got to get Embiid back or keep Embiid into game shape, which has always been a struggle when he has not been playing basketball. You've got to maintain your positioning, and this is a Sixers team now at 25 and 14, who is still in a, a dogfight. Like, uh, what's, uh, what's Miami? I think Miami's like 25 and 10. So you're a couple games behind Miami. What was that? 27 and 10. They're, 27 they're, and 10. Jeez. They're spacing themselves out from the rest of the, the pack. So they're, they're the two seed. You've got the... You've got my cat knocking shit over again. It's a big part of the playoff race. What the fuck? Uh, anyway, um... I'm, I'm completely distracted. Every now and then, like, my cat at random points of the day will just turn into, like, it's just a 12-year-old cat. And he'll just turn into, like, he needs to just randomly run around the house. And this is apparently one of them. Then you've got the Celtics and the Raptors ahead of the Sixers. Sixers currently in the five seed. They're about a game and a half up on Indy in the six seed. So they're very much in a dogfight for playoff positioning. Not only is a, you know, they started the season talking about having... They started the season talking about having... I, I feel like I'm in the Ricky right now with Spike's dog. Home Rebel. court for the playoffs. Yeah, they're in a dog fight for... They started off the season saying that they were in a, a fight for home court for the playoffs all throughout the Eastern Conference. That's clearly not going to happen. Milwaukee's like eight or nine games up. Not only that, but now you're fighting for home court advantage even in the first round. So there's a lot at stake right now. And also, by the way, you have to figure out whether, whether or not the starting lineup can even function together at a high enough level. And now you're probably not going to have any more data points to evaluate that because he is likely to be out beyond the trade deadline. So I guess we'll start off. What is your biggest concern with this injury? Not from a, how they'll win game standpoint, but how it impacts their season. I think it's the last thing you said that they don't have any more time to figure out how to score with this gigantic starting lineup that has not been able to score. Um, it, that, that's the, the simplest part of it. I mean, there are a lot of reasons to worry. I think, in the two games prior to him sitting out, or with him sitting out prior to the Boston game, they got killed. So that's also a worry. Where do they end up in the, the Eastern Conference playoff race? Because, you know, that was a, a really gutty performance. But if he's out for a month, can you keep it up? Because there are, I mean, the next two games are at Dallas and at Indy. We saw how at Indy without Embiid was last time. There are games against, in the next month, there are games against, I think there are five against the top teams in the East, or five or six. There's a Toronto game, there's a Boston game, there's a Miami game, there's a Milwaukee game. There's a lot. And I'm, you know, as I'm looking at this schedule, I can kind of guess what they're thinking. I mean, if, if he's going to be out a month, if you're, uh, your estimate that the ring finger takes a little less time than the thumb, which is plausible. About a month would take you to the All Star break, and then that All Star break. Can you imagine break. the hysteria if his first return to action is the All Star game? Oh my God, fans will lose their mind. And by the way, I wouldn't necessarily disagree with him on this one. Yeah, let's say he doesn't play in the All Star game, and that buys him an extra nine days after that's over. That'll get him up to about six weeks when when that is over with. Yeah, and there's a lot of things that that I'm worried about. 
I will say the conditioning thing, if he can't stay in shape with a freaking ring finger injury, that does not prevent you from running. That does not prevent <laughs> you. Look, if he is like majorly sucking wind when he is coming back from this injury, I'm sorry. That is ridiculous. Yeah. So, so there are a lot of things to, to be worried about how the team is playing, but I, I would say the, you know, for a team that really has kind of made their bed as a, as a flip the switch team at this point of the year, I'm more worried about that they just don't have the time to get the Embiid Horford Simmons fit ironed out offensively. Yeah. And not only from a, an evaluation standpoint, but just a chemistry standpoint, like Al Horford and Josh, when you have that full big lineup out there, Al Horford and Josh Richardson just don't look fully comfortable with their role and with their, you know, what they have to attack and what they have to exploit. It is, I mean, go back to our last podcast when we were panicking about losing three in a row and, and including that one to the Pacers. And there's still an overarching question of, is this starting five good enough? Can Will they be able to score in the playoffs? And I think that's still very much up in the air. And the fact that, you know, again, go back to that last podcast, we're like, I'm glad they don't have to make this determination now because there will be packages presented to them where it's like, maybe the this isn't as good of a talent as we currently have, but maybe the fit is better. And they're going to have to make decisions based off of how to go forward. And it would have been great to have the extra four weeks of data, but now they they, they can't, they won't. Yeah. And this, whatever this is they what do they'll now, have to evaluate going into the deadline. Yeah. And whatever they have now in the interim, whatever they do, it's completely different. Al Horford's life is completely different today than it was two days ago. And that's just sort of, you know, the calculus made was that, Hey, the defense is going to be so great that that's okay. But he's, he's, I fully expect him to get back into rhythm. You look at some of his, his numbers with and without Embiid. It's fucking staggering. It is staggering the difference. Like we're talking, he averages 9.2 points per 100 possessions and shoots 39% from the field with Embiid on the floor. 24.8 points per 100 possessions and 48% when Embiid's on the bench. And we're talking about maybe 400 minutes with Embiid and 600 minutes without Embiid. So we're starting to get to the point where those 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 numbers have meaning behind them. You you and, can see why too. I mean, Brett oh, didn't sure. Brett didn't change up the plays last night. He changed up who was running the plays. Yeah. And on that on those Richardson pick and rolls instead of spacing in the cor- corner, now Horford's in Embiid's spot. He's screening yep. for him. Well, guess what? Gonna score a lot more points doing that. Yeah, and and not only that, but he, like there's like the spacing is just completely different. The attacking, the closeouts, the passing opportunities he has to him, there his role is completely different. And we saw this in Boston. Like you put him in a lot of pick and rolls, he was in. I, and this is only possession ending events. Like this is, you know, shot, uh, turnover, foul drawn, things of that sort. He would average about four per game with Boston and about under two per game with the Sixers. It was went from 30% of his offense to about 15%. And that's a pretty huge... And again, there are many other plays where the possession won't end, where he'll pass maybe a hockey assist, things of that sort. His play is going to be completely different, and that's great. And I, I have confidence that he will help keep this offense afloat. In fact, I think one of the most underreported aspects of the season right now is that the Sixers, through a considerable amount of the season, have been better offensively when Joel Embiid's on the, on, on the bench. And he's the only only starter you can say that for. Like, Sixers' offense is 6.1 points per 100 better with Simmons on the floor, 4.6 with Harris, uh, 2.1 better with Horford, and 0.6 better 
With Richardson, they're 2.7 points per 100 better when Embiid's on the bench. And there's because of those backup lineups. Oh, sure. There's a lot of a lot of that involved. There's a lot of noise involved, too. But what I'm saying is these these pieces that you have, which don't fit with and and, and, and there's a lot like it would be great to have an offense that uh, personnel that fit with Embiid and that starting lineup does not really at all. But a lot of those pieces do fit together. Like when you start constructing a team around Ben Simmons, Horford at the five makes a lot more sense. When you talk about Al Horford's optimal role in the NBA in 2020, I almost said 2019, I caught myself. At the five, <laughs> around someone like Simmons, with a bunch of cutters off of him, is, is sort of like the blueprint you would draw up. Yeah. And he can play to that game a lot more when Embiid's not there. There's the entire, and, and I don't, don't misconstrue that as me saying like the offense is better without Embiid. Like he's a, a huge talent on both. And, and, and to be perfectly clear, the net rating with Embiid is drastically better because he completely transforms the Sixers defense. Like, I think they are like something like nine points per 100 worse defensively when he's not on the floor. So there's no argument that he is a net negative. I don't want to start that conversation at all. No, no, we're, sa- we're pieces- saying it's a good thing that Embiid's out. They, now they can start winning <laughs> right. some damn games. No, no, what I'm saying is uh, this entire construction of this team, it feels like there is just one too many, uh, one too many of everything, one too many paint presence, one too many person who needs a ball in their hands, one too many big in the pick and roll, two too many big in the pick and roll, probably when you start talking about Embiid and Horford and Simmons, where they all might be best as, as a big in the pick and roll. There's just one too many of a lot of different things. And when you remove one, a lot of other people's lives make a lot more sense. There's not one too many shooter, though. No, or ball handler. Just yeah. one too many role big men. Yeah, yeah, that's that's Post tough. Up big men. Yep. The uh, the spacing you could see it in that game last night. Even when Simmons would have a his version of a rec- record scratch, it, it still felt like there was more options for him to move the ball after that happened. Or you know, whether it was Horford posting up, even, you know, I, I've been critical of his post-ups, but they ran a play for him to uh, to post up Daniel Tice last night. He put Tice under the basket because there was space on the floor. You know, it's that was a good sign and a good reminder that Al Horford is not cooked as an offensive player or anything. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it's bad that we're not going to be able to see these guys play. So, yeah. Moving forward, I think the story of the season w- would say that the offense is going to be pretty good in this couple of weeks, more than a couple of weeks, however long Embiid is out. The question is, can they get stops? And we've talked a lot about Horford and his lack of rim protection. So, so the Sixers, I thought, as the game went on against Boston, they got more and more aggressive on the pick and roll. They yep. moved Horford up. We we talked about this a couple podcasts ago. I don't remember which one, but just that we were sick of him getting caught in no man's land and seeing a lob get thrown over his head. Well, they were more proactive in this one against a team with a pick-and-roll guard who can pull right off the screen in Kemba Walker and a bunch of other wings who are creative ball handlers and can get their own shot. They were awesome, and, and the rim protection numbers were great. Boston didn't get to the rim at all. They shot a bad percentage when they got there. So, yeah, the Sixers are going to have to be a completely different team, and they all admitted this after the game, which 
just adds to the weirdness of this season. Your star player goes down and it's like, okay, we're going to play completely different now. We're going to play fast. We're going to switch everything and be just as proactive and... Rich is doing this podcast from uh, an airstrip. What the heck was that? I don't even know. Um, (laughs) Sometimes you just got to laugh. Living in the city, man. Yeah, so Matisse Dybul is back last night. They will be able to switch. And and by the way, the the other thing that that I forgot to mention with how, uh, how well they match up with teams in the playoffs, Ben Simmons' defense is just tremendous. I was thinking about this last night. Is he the most complete defensive player in the league? Not the best, not the most impactful. I want to get that out of the way. I'm not talking about Rudy Gobert. I'm not talking about Joel Embiid. What they can do schematically for your defense is just night and day. But in terms of not having a weakness, he might be the most complete defensive player in the NBA. He might be the, the most plug-and-play right player yeah. where against any style and any player, he can hold up. And they even tried him a little bit at center in that game. I didn't really like that. I, him guarding Enes Kenner seems like a waste he's the one I think I mean you can go back to before Ben Simmons played a game like Ben Simmons at center has intrigued me mostly because it unlocks his it masks his weaknesses and unlocks his strengths offensively and and some of that passing and I mean that 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 role man stuff that short roll stuff can really become interesting but also like defensively I think it has to be like sort of the right opponent and the right opponent center and Cantor I don't think is necessarily the blueprint of like Daniel Tice at center makes a lot more sense to run him out there. Some of these small ball centers other teams use might make some more sense, and you can buy some minutes there. But uh, Cantor was tough for him, for sure. We have seen him guard Butler really well, just Stone Butler, honestly. Harden, he did a decent job against. And I got to say, here, here's the hot take of the day. It's not a hot take. Against one of the most overrated offensive players in the league, Jason Tatum. He just shuts him down. I mean, Tatum attacking Simmons, which he did a few times in that game, is not a win for Boston. And, and think uh, back to the playoff matchup. I still think we're going to, if this continues with Tatum, I know what you're going to say. We might look back at that as one of the weirdest series ever. Tatum was a rookie, and he was unguardable yep, yep. in that series. And now I'm watching them play Boston. And I'm thinking, get the ball to Kemba. What this is ridiculous. What are you doing? Yep. And and to be fair to Tatum, he's done a lot of good stuff defensively. He had a pick six on Simmons in that game. He had a couple steals. I I think he's gotten better as a defensive player. But you look at his shooting numbers; they just get worse every year. Yeah, and I mean, he, he that that was part of the concern was how well he could scale up and do being a one A or a, even a two option. But also just the growth of Ben Simmons. Like he looked overmatched three years ago in the playoffs against Tatum. And he he just he he owns him right now. When he's on Jalen Brown, he owns and by the way, Jalen Brown's having a really good season. Yeah, he really, really has. a lot of offensive growth. Ben Simmons owns them right now and he's he's really I, I I truly mean this. He might be the most complete defensive player, the one with the fewest weaknesses in the NBA to go from you know guarding Kemba to Harden to Ennis Cantor to like anyone you can think of, the Sixers th- to Brown and Tatum like they can throw him on anyone, almost literally anyone. And his combination of shutdown one-on-one, versatility, off-ball ball hawking, like that strip he had late in the game at a clutch moment. Like how many games has he won or sealed 
with huge defensive plays. And he does this without really being out of position either. It's just his growth has been remarkable. It really. I think I heard somebody call him Deion Sanders. He wins games by basically telling teams, don't throw at me because I'm going to get the ball. I mean, remember the Indiana game a couple weeks ago, the the home game. The one that didn't suck. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that one was a little better. That one was okay. Yeah, it's uh, what he's doing is really unique, and we harp on his offense all the time, and we're going to continue to do so because it's really important. But if he does not make an all-defensive team, it would be a shame. He does. He he has a couple of weaknesses in that. Remember, we talked a couple weeks ago about how Butler got him with a few off-ball cuts and, and some oh, attention sure. to detail. A couple times he didn't box out last night against Boston, and he allowed them to get rebounds. That that would be one of my few nitpicks, but I'm sorry. What he does on the ball and just how opponents really can't attack him one-on-one is, is really impressive. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And like like you said, we can nitpick. Not, not even nitpick. There are real legitimate gripes. And like there are a lot of solutions you've seen come up lately. Use Ben as a role man. And like I agree, they should use him more. It's it's tough when you don't have any elite ball handlers, and when your paint has Embiid and Horford and 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 even to a lesser extent Harris, gumming it up. But yes, he he should be used more as a role man or like play him next to, move him off. My favorite is make him not the point guard. It's like well, first of all, he's not like he spends a lot of possessions off ball in the half court anyway. So what exactly are you saying changing? But also who you, who are you putting the ball into their hands? Like we all agree that he would be best alongside another elite ball handler but like you don't have those if your offseason hopes rest on trey burke you're kind of screwed so trey burke is not good enough to unlock the the short roll for ben simmons no. off the screen so like his his trey his, burke's his, playing well too so yeah good for, and good for him i'm a little worried that he's not going to shoot 47 percent from three for the rest of the year and i'm gonna he's gonna drive me nuts when he starts missing those shots me too but, but like, give him credit while he's playing well oh sure he's playing good basketball and uh like I said, defensively, he tries hard, and I I respect that, even if the production is never going to be there. Um, he really does try hard. That is a, really a credit to Brett yeah. to, to get him to try harder than it looks like he has tried at any point in his career. But I guess, I guess my point is, first of all, I, <clears throat> especially when you start talking about Embiid coming back and post-ups, like, whatever you call him offensively, his lack of spacing is still going to be a factor in that. And when he's, he's off-ball, his lack of spacing is still going to be a factor in that. I don't care what you label him as. I don't care who brings the ball up the court. Like when he's 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 not spacing an Embiid post up, that's always going to be an issue. But second of all, like the Sixers playoff the championship equity was based so much on having two of these top ten players that if he doesn't develop offensively, it becomes a lot tougher to see that. So it's always going to be an issue if he doesn't develop. It, there's no easy solution like using him as the role man or just moving him off ball, especially when you don't have a better option to handle the ball or at least a. a, a good option, a, a real legitimate top of the NBA playmaker. These are not easy solutions. So we can, it's, it's very much frustration. Yes. Elation defensively. Yes. And I think that makes my head spin so goddamn much, but it's very much where we are. Yeah. Josh Richardson. Great game. Yeah. Yep. And that, that's good. You know, a, a lot of the struggles and again, that's part of why like, we talk about the Sixers having like 19 games with their starting lineup. Well, 11 of them came during this recent stretch where both Richardson and Horford just couldn't buy a bucket. So now all of a sudden Richardson is playing better. Well, is that because the lineup changed? Is that because he's just getting back out of his funk? Is he feeling a little bit healthier now? 
same thing with with Horford. Like I think Horford was in a slump, and again, clunky role, yes, but part of it was also a slump. So how, you really have to gauge how much is fixable just by these guys playing better basketball, even if they weren't in optimal roles. And it's 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 tough, but it'll it'll be fun to see how they respond because they do have a lot of really tough games coming up here. Yeah, he uh, they they put the the ball in his hands and pick and rolls all night, and he uh, he really made Boston pay. I thought there was a stretch at the beginning of the fourth quarter. They put out a lineup that I thought was super dicey. I said this too at the time. I think it was Burke, Richardson, Corkmaz, Scott, Pell. Norvell Pell, yep. And I was like, oh, man. Again. <laughs> no Simmons, no Horford, no Harris. This is yep. super dicey. And they put the ball in Richardson's hands. And he scored on three straight pick and rolls in three different ways. One was a floater, one was a pull up against drop, and then Kander switched on him and Richardson busted him up with a jumper. It was it was an excellent stretch and the Sixers actually extended the lead up. Yeah, right? yeah. Yeah, it was it was good. Corkmaz gave him some some good shooting in that game. It was uh it was a strong stretch. They uh let, It's amazing though. You 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 have a team that just lost seven out of eleven games against a, a hated rival. That's towards the top of the Eastern Conference, desperately fighting for playoff positioning in the middle of January. And you've got Trey Burke, Norvell Pell, Mike Scott, and Furkan Korkmaz on the court. And it's just, it's best laid plans of mice and men, man. You nobody would have predicted this when the season started. They're going to make Norvell an NBA contract over the next five days, don't you think? Yeah. I mean, it's it's clear that he is Brett's preferred option. And I guess, I guess the back up i think they have like four or five days left of norvell pell you think he'd play me over kylo quinn by the way <laughs> kylo quinn is pretty far out of the rotation yeah i'm but not sure it's but centered. he's good in the locker room as, <laughs> yeah. as brett made to well, whenever made clear whenever brett has to immediately dive into but he's good in the locker room it's not it's it's a it's an endorsement but it's also like there's a there's a backhanded aspect to that as well yeah i mean i norvell has four or five days left if NBA service time on his two-way contract in order to keep him around, they will have to create an open a roster spot, which I guess we can get into in a second and then offer him a contract for the rest of the season. And it seems pretty cut and dry that he is their preferred backup center right now. And, and quite frankly, on merit, he should be like, he gave them a real jolt of energy again last night against the Celtics. And the only one who can really even remotely, you know, protect the rim of that group. Yeah, um, I guess he is, he is hilarious to watch. There was is. one play where Canner backed him down on a post up, and again, he has a ton of weight on him and a ton of strength. Put him under the rim, and Norvell still blocked the hook shot while under the rim that that Canner put up. He, uh, yeah, he will for better or worse try to block everything. Yep, and honestly, for the most part, that's for for the better because when you have a backup center. It's just you want energy, and I think a couple like a month ago or so, Brett was asked, "Well, are you worried about all his fouling?" And Brett was like, "Nah, I just want him to play hard. That's that's kind of what we ask of him." And I think less is asked of him than most people in terms of like thinking the game. It's just block anything you can at the rim and roll really hard at the other yeah. end. And he he does give them that element of a vertical spacer. Tobias had a nice alley oop to him. In, in the game as well. So I uh I enjoy a little Norvell Pell. There's there's two ways you can prevent Norvell Pell from fouling. One is through experience. And as Brett has said a million times, you can't expedite that. 
Like those decisions aren't going to get better until he's seen them, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of times. The other way is to ask him to not be aggressive. And that, that just, that negates his, the one skill set he has that makes him an NBA prospect. So yeah, l- let him foul. It's best you can do. Two quick things. First of all, this quote from Brett Brown, he tweeted it out. I have, I have to read it because it's, it's just unbelievable. absurd. This is on basically defensive adjustments you can make to cater to Al's strengths rather than what you would do with Embiid. And Brett on his, his defensive strategy, I'm putting a blowtorch, a bullet, many bullets in what we used to do. It doesn't fit. And, and so shame on me to try to make it fit. We don't have Joel Embiid. And when I say blowtorch and bullet, I mean it. And then he immediately pivots to, it doesn't mean we have to be to completely pivot out of wild stuff that could be reckless. I don't think so. I think it's just taking sort of the house we lived in and move the furniture around a little bit. And that's what I intend to do. So sometimes when you think like, how do you cover a team? You don't think of a coach starting off saying, I'm going to put a blowtorch to what we used to do. And then saying, eh, we're just going to move some furniture around. I, uh, I, I don't, I don't know what to make of that quote, but I guess we'll go to what the defensive adjustments they actually did make were. And I think it essentially boils down. And you talked about it a bit earlier and it is, it does surprise you a little bit that it's taken this long, but with Al, he's just, he's playing farther out. He's rather than dropping back on a pick and roll, he's extending himself out beyond the free throw line, applying a little bit more pressure. And if that causes the Sixers to get into rotations, then so be it. Do you think this is sort of like the way, the the right way for them to go about this non-embed portion of their schedule? Yes. Next question. <laughs> okay. Next question. Why? Why? Why do you think they stuck with the drop coverage with Horford so long? I, I think you you talked about it with me a little bit last night. Maybe there was just a need or a desire to have the same coverage for the perimeter guys. At all times. I, I don't understand it, though, because it was not working. And when you looked at the the rim shooting percentage when Horford was in the game, it was brutal. Yep. Yeah. So I don't know why they, they did this. Horford, after the game against Boston, said, we actually made this switch a little bit against Oklahoma City. And they did. They did start switching at the end of that game with him and Richardson. And he says, this is the way I prefer to play. So if that's the way you prefer to play, why is it halfway through the season and we're first finally seeing this? It just, it doesn't make a ton of sense to me. I understand that it's not the panacea. Like it's not, you play this style and everything completely goes away. Like there are things on the back line that now open up and you can potentially get beat by dribble penetration more easily and get give up just uncontested laps. I understand that. But even when you saw, I don't know, Tatum or Walker switched out on Horford and, and they, dr- they drug him out to the perimeter, he's fine. That's not a terrible matchup for you. And God, if they make a step back too, which is usually what he's going to give up in that case, that's good defense. So yeah, I don't understand why this has taken so long. I, I would hope that's how they play during this stretch they're going to. I mean, it just it clearly works. So if they're if they change that up, there's something pretty wrong, I would say, with uh with what the coaching staff is doing defensively. But when Embiid comes back as well, they need to shift into a two two modes defensively. And uh if they do that, they have a chance to be pretty damn good for forty eight minutes, I think. 
Yeah, I think, I mean, I, the only explanation I would have is that they wanted to simplify it for the other four guys on the court. Keep it consistent, hammer home their base scheme, and then they could adjust out of that in the playoffs. When it well, matters. guess what? In the, in the playoffs, you're going to have to adjust, so why, why don't you master this scheme now? Yeah, I mean, I, I think now that they're doing it for four to five weeks rather than 10 minutes a game, I think, I, th- I think that's why we're seeing it now. But I do agree with you. Like, you could have, I, I think you could have been sprinkling it in. Like, this isn't, earth-shattering stuff that you're talking about here. This is this is something that I think you can trust the other four guys to to handle. Uh, I do think it fits Horford's strength strengths and weaknesses better. I think this is one of the things he is pretty uniquely good at in terms of a, a, a legitimate big man. So, you know, when we start looking at some of the non-Embiid defensive numbers in the past and some of the Horford at center defensive numbers in the past, could you see them get maybe a point or two per 100 better because they're playing a more optimal scheme. And also because now Matisse Thibel's back and the rest of your lineup is intact. Yeah, I, th- I think they could be a little more competitive defensively than they have been. I think Horford will. I think I think Horford will remind us why he was a good player before. And the question is whether or not he can continue to remind us when Joel Embiid comes back and he becomes a corner three-point shooter again and what they can learn and, and take away from this period. So he's a little bit more than that. And we'll see. We'll see. What I we think the scheme is... fits the other guys as well. Richardson yeah. and Swin- and uh, Simmons switching. That's, yep. that's what you're looking for. At the end of that game, they were they had some excellent defensive possessions. None of none of these guys are spot up shooters, so I think it fits them. Pure spot up shooters or, or or off ball movers. So it's it's not a team that's constructed to be built around Embiid's strengths offensively. And I do agree with you that this. You know, they have a lot of similarly sized defenders, and I think the scheme, well, certainly it's a scheme that I think I enjoy watching more. It's just a more entertaining brand of basketball. It forces a lot of either turnover, it for, for, forces more turnovers on the perimeter and more dunks for the other team, which the latter of which is why Brett doesn't really like to run it too much. But either way, it's entertaining for us. But I do also think we will see, you know, a little more aggressive aggressiveness from some of the other guys, which will be, which will be good. So we will watch that unfold. All right. I think that's probably a pretty good place to cut it off here. Thank you, Rich, for jumping on, and we will talk to you soon. See you, man.